five, four, three, two, one. I'm Mark Boucher. This is the SpaceQ podcast. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with SpaceQ. I encourage you to visit our website at spaceq.ca to check out the latest news and original stories written by myself and our other writers. We cover the space sector in Canada, along with select international stories, including New Space. For more coverage of the global space sector and the U.S., please visit our affiliate sites spaceref.com, nasawatch.com, and astrobiology.com. If you like what we do, then please support us on Patreon. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We need your support to keep producing this podcast and writing original, impactful stories. This week we're doing something a little different and unplanned. On Friday, April 6th, Western University in London, Ontario, held its fourth annual Space Day. Western University is one of the leading planetary science universities in Canada, if not the best. The keynote speaker was former Canadian astronaut Dr. Dave Williams. Williams flew on two space shuttle missions, STS-90 in April of 1998, almost 20 years ago to the date, and then again on STS-118 in August 2007. He holds the Canadian cumulative long-duration record for spacewalks. He's also the writer of several children books, including Go for Liftoff, To Burp, or Not to Burp, and this fall he will have his first adult book published, Defying Limits, My Life as an Astronaut, Doctor, and Explorer. Williams is an excellent speaker and storyteller. For that reason, I decided to share his unedited speech in this week's podcast. Enjoy. But uh, I do want to start by saying space exploration, not for the faint of heart, and it is critically important that one be relentlessly optimistic in exploring space. And I think there's great cause for optimism as we look forward to the next 50 years of human space exploration. Now, my only question is, do you guys have like a little clicker to advance? Is it right here? Does it work? Let's see what happens. Here we go. Oh, the moment of truth. <laughs> there we are. Years ago, so I went to McGill for everything, and actually, I gave a talk at Queen's University one time, and I was kind of joking at Queen's because I applied to medical school there, and they rejected me. But anyway, I've never applied to Western for medical school. I don't know, so I can't say one way or another. But I, I, Western's a great university, and we worked uh, collaboratively in the area of surgical robotics when I was at McMaster and things, that was a lot of fun. But I'd like to draw your attention to the upper right-hand corner because people ask me, what are you? And I would say at this point in my career, I'm not an astronaut, I'm not an aquanaut, I'm an exploration scientist. I'm a physician that's interested in human performance in extreme environments. Whether those extreme environments are underwater, in the Arctic, the Antarctic, in space, etc., I'm very passionate about human physiology in those ones. So my definition for exploration, relentlessly seeking knowledge with passion. And this was a contest that McGill had years ago, write your life story in six words, I'll Ernest Hemingway, and that's what I was able to come up with. It didn't get too far, but it got me on the website, which I thought was kind of cool, you know? Anyway. So we look at exploration, and traditionally in the context of space exploration, we think of this as macro, but as a neuroscientist, if I think about the exploration that we do in the central nervous system, that would be more micro, but in fact, to me, it's the same passion, it's the same quest for knowledge that drives us in our pursuit of, uh, of knowledge. So let's go back to 1861. We have a whole group of folks who are experts in space. You guys actually, to be quite honest, you know way more about space than I do. So anyway, 1861, something happened in Canada that was pivotal for the space program. Anyone remember what that was? Remember, this is six years before Confederation. 1861. The first principal of Queen's <coughs> University, William Leach, described modern rocket, space travel, and human spaceflight. Before Jules Verne wrote From the Earth to the Moon, before Tchaikovsky came up with the concept of exploring space, before Goddard designed the, ro the uh, rocket. So we sit there and say, you know, Americans and Russians, they were the first to go into space. It was a Canadian that came up with the idea. Does anybody know that? 
No. Don't tell anybody, right? <laughs> don't, don't share this top secret information. And you know, we talked about the importance of getting excited about space and sharing our heritage in space. Our legacy of interest in space goes back to 1861. And who can talk about that? So at NASA, we like to say, the lessons for the future are written in the past. And I think that's very true. We coined that phrase with regard to development of expeditionary behavior, the behavioral skills we need to have to work together when we leave um, the planet and go work in low Earth orbit. And of course, when we train astronauts to go and live and work on board the International Space Station for a year at a time, Scott Kelly, my commander on 118, was up there for a year, we learned about Shackleton and Shackleton's expeditions to the Antarctic. And I tell you, when you're crossing the Drake Passage, which this is a picture of the ship that I was on when we crossed the Drake Passage, this ship is 350 uh, feet long, and it's 150 feet from the bow to where I'm standing on the bridge, and you'll notice it's underwater. And that illustrates the incredible power of the Drake Passage. But of course, uh, this is the academic Yofi, the ship that I was on, and that whole bow was underwater bridge was above water, fortunately. But once you actually get there, it's an absolutely breathtaking environment. And one of the things that I think we need to appreciate on Earth is the beauty of our planet. As astronauts, we get to see it from a very unique vantage point, looking back at the planet from space, seeing this beautiful blue oasis, a four and a half billion year old planet upon which the entire history of the human species has taken place. But when you go to places like that on Earth, you realize we need to protect it for the future. And when you go to the Arctic and you see the changes in glaciation that's taking place, you see the melting of ice and it's taking place in the Antarctic as well, you realize that we do need to protect the planet for future generations. So let's talk about beyond Earth orbit, which is really cool because the title of the talk was Extending the Time Distance Constant of Human Space Exploration. I'd love to say I was bright enough to come up with that title. It wasn't me. It was Dan Golden when he was NASA Administrator, around 1996-1997. Back in the 90s, we're talking about beyond Earth orbit missions. And I think that's one of the things that's exciting, looking for the future, past the horizon of the Earth, back to the Moon and on to Mars. And of course, there's other potential destinations we could go to, there's absolutely no question. But if you were to ask me what my preference is, I would prefer, let's just go Mars direct. Now, the moon is a great thing. There's all sorts of great things we can do there, and we'll talk about that. But um, exploring space is something really interesting. You're going to look at this slide, and you're going to say, oh, my goodness gracious, this guy's never given a talk before. I can't read it. You don't need to read it, trust me, okay? I put the slide in for the purposes of illustrating the fact that back in the 60s, this is where we started, 1961, Alan Shepard, Yuri Gagarin, first flying in space. These are the number of space flights. And you can see that they increased in frequency over that decade. But more importantly, it was the development of three different spacecraft, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, the proof of concept for spacewalking, rendezvous, and docking that enabled the Americans to land humans on the moon by the end of that decade. So even though you're not frequently going, the impact was exponential. We went from being here, never having traveled in space, to 10 years later, actually having humans live and work on the surface of the moon and coming back today. How crazy is that? You know, you hold your thumb up and you block out the moon. Well, it's the same thing if you're standing on the moon, you hold your thumb up and you block out the earth. It's unbelievable. It is so unbelievable. We actually have people who say it never happened. And they're totally convinced that it never happened. So when I was director of the Space and Life Sciences Directorate, and I know the room is filled primarily with planetary scientists, and I love planetary scientists, I just don't have a clue what you guys do because I'm a life scientist, right? So anyway, when I was director of space and life sciences, the space portion was part of my portfolio. And if I was having a bad day in the office, you know, in management, you know what it's like, right? Management. It, sometimes you have bad days. So if I have a bad day, I go down to the lunar sample curatorial facility, put on a bunny suit, and sit there and play with pieces of the moon. Now, how cool is that? <laughs> so I can tell you, we've been to the moon because I used to play with pieces of the moon when I was having a bad day at work and things. So it's amazing when you think of that capability in that first decade of human spaceflight. And then you get all these little blips. And they're really frequent, but they're doing the same thing. We're launching the shuttle into low Earth orbit and bringing it back. And then we build the space station. And we launch humans to the space station, which is kind of up here in 2000. And we're continuing to launch humans to the space station. They're staying longer, but we're still in low Earth orbit. So my personal belief, I don't represent any institution at all other than myself, 
My personal belief is it's time to leave lower orbit. Been there, done that, we've been doing it for 50 years. Now we need to figure out where we're going to go beyond Earth orbit, and that's, I think, the really exciting part. So the first 50 years of human spaceflight went by. Really incredible. What's the next 50 going to be? We were talking about what's going to happen in 2050. In 2050, all things said, I'm going to be 96 years old, touch wood. Okay? Am I going to make it to the 100th anniversary of human spaceflight? Probably not. Although you never know. You never say never. But when are we going to go to Mars? The Apollo astronauts of the 60s thought we were going to Mars in the decade of the 70s. And we could have, arguably, leveraged the Apollo technology and the Saturn V uh, rocket and been able to go to Mars. But when are we going to have humans walking on the surface of Mars? Keep shifting to the right. There's that little creep going on. You know, you asked me in 20, uh, let's say 2020, I would have heard, sorry, 2000, I would have said it's around 2020, 2025. Now, today, I say it's 2035 that we're going to be going to Mars, and maybe it's going to shift even farther than that. But that's a question that needs to be answered, and everybody in this room is going to be part of answering that question. And are we going to send humans to Mars? And of course, my assertion is yes, we need to be able to send humans to Mars. And it's not easy sending humans to Mars. In fact, the story of human spaceflight is a story of physiologic transition. In other words, the physiology, the functioning of your body, adapts from a 1G environment where we live and work into a 0G transit phase where we go to a destination. And then depending upon the destination we go to, you're in partial gravity for a period of time. Then you're coming back in 0G. And then you're going to land in 1G again. And if you're going to Mars, it's roughly a three-year scenario. So all of these dangers that we talk about, the radiation that could potentially cause cancer, the bone changes, the heart, the psychological, blah, blah, blah. You can read it as well as I can. All these changes are real. And then the question is, how do we develop mission scenarios to protect these crew members during these missions and to make sure that they're coming back to Earth healthy? So the International Space Station, I would say, arguably the most complex piece of technology built in the history of the human species. Absolutely unbelievable. The story of the space station that has never been told, it's probably the most important story of the space station, is one of international collaboration. So when I'm an astronaut on the, interna on the International Space Station, in fact, I'm a human first. So I represent humanity. I represent the human species. And there's what we would call, I'm going to make up a new word, the internationalization of exploration of space. In other words, we're there. It doesn't matter if you're Canadian, American, Japanese, European, or Russian. We're there as a crew of humans on behalf of humanity exploring space. And I suspect when we leave low Earth orbit, it'll be the same thing. That we're embarking on a journey into space representing the human species, which I believe is a spacefaring species. So you land after being in space, and this is the first increment crew. You can see they're a little deconditioned, right? You know, you sort of ask, would you mind sitting upright? The way I refer to this is when I come back from space, I like to say I'm gravitationally challenged. You know, lift your arm up like that. It's a bit of uh, effort to be able to do that. So imagine this crew not being on the, uh, in Kazakhstan, but being on the surface of Mars. And even though gravity is you know, roughly 40% of what it is here on Earth, they actually have to get up, walk around, do usable things like inflate the habitat, you know, probably with a foot pump, I'm just kidding. But you know, imagine if you're this deep condition and you actually have to do useful work or you have to do an emergency egress and things. So understanding what we can do to mitigate these changes in muscle strength and bone density and the neurovestibular cardiovascular changes and things is very important for us to be able to land crews on another planet in a manner that's healthy. So living and working in space, I mean, this is just fun. We, we can go through it because it is fun. They don't tell you how to wash your face in space. And you know, it's interesting because there's the official and the unofficial way. And the official way is you take a uh, washcloth and you wet it and you wet you know, that. Who wants to do that? It's more fun if you take a big blob of water, like a lot bigger than this, but we don't take pictures of it because NASA doesn't like big blobs of water. So anyway, it's just a small little blob, and you stick your face in the blob of water. So the other thing that's even more exciting is you take the big blob of water, and Marilyn, you'll remember this, but in Neuralab, so I flew my first space flight in 1998. We had sword tailfish, we had oyster tail fish, which are amazing fish. They're kind of ugly, but anyway. So we had these fish, and we had crickets, and we had rats, and all this stuff. Imagine if you took a blob of water, and you put a goldfish in that. 
in space. Is a goldfish going to swim kind of randomly around like that? And then there's no aquarium, right? So what's going to happen when the goldfish gets to the edge? Is it going to stick its nose out and go, oh, it's bad out there? <laughs> or is it the surface tension of the liquid-air interface sufficient that it'll get there and go, oh, that's bad. I'm, I'm just not going to go there. We don't know. And these are the things that are so cool because they capture the imagination of kids. And we talk about STEM and the importance of STEM education. And don't get me wrong, STEM education is really critical. You talk to a six-year-old about STEM, and they're saying, what, what are you talking about? A rose? STEM? I, mean, I don't know what you mean. So the kids, they don't want to use the term STEM, but boy, are they interested in things like goldfish and water bubbles in space. They want to know all about that kind of stuff because it's really cool. I want to know about it. I want to go do the experiment. So anyway, when you're in space and uh, there's no gravity, obviously, you can float around. And you'll notice a difference between short-duration astronauts and long-duration astronauts by this very important skill, typing on a keyboard. The short-duration astronauts will use a foot loop, not like this person, but generally they'll stick their leg into a foot loop. They'll have the uh, computer on a shelf like that, and they'll be typing away. The long-duration folks, they got the computer floating freely beside them, and they're kind of floating freely beside it, and you're so skilled at it that you just type, and the computer's kind of doing this, and you're just <laughs> typing away, and it's all good, and you don't need gravity, and you get really good at understanding how to live and work in this unique environment. Shoes in space, we don't use them. The only time we use shoes in space is if you're running on the treadmill or cycling on the cyclergometer. Otherwise, you're using foot loops, and by and large, when you've been in space, you don't need foot loops anymore. You've figured out how to position yourself uh, appropriately. Sleeping in space, interestingly enough, on Neurolab, we discovered, yes, it's true, you can actually snore in space. So we can talk about the physiology of snoring in the question period afterwards, if you would like. The other thing that's interesting is I remember sleeping in space, and uh, this was on my second space flight on STS 118, and your hands float up in front of you when you're asleep. And on 118, I actually used my sleep restraint system, my sleeping bag, like you know you see here. And you can tell this is a real picture with people who are really asleep because their arms are floating up. But I remember on 118 having this dream. I'm thinking, wow, this is really incredible. I'm kind of floating around, and then I thought somebody's reaching out to strangle me. I know this is not a good dream, right? So I woke up and it started, oh, and there's these hands right in front of me, like, oh my goodness! And then I realized they're my own hands. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, back to sleep. It's all going to be good now. Anyway, food in space. The biggest challenge that we're going to have in lunar and Martian missions is boredom, food boredom. People get bored of food. And this is the uh, type of meal that you would have on board the space shuttle um, when we dock with the space station. And depending upon whether you're in the Russian segment or the US segment of the space station, similar types of foods. The Russians tend to use more canned foods and more fresh juices as opposed to the Americans who tend to use more freeze-dried materials. And the juices tend to be a mixture of you know, sugar and food uh, coloring and um, uh, the different uh, chemicals and taste things. Anyway, let's just have a quick look at this because it, it's kind of fun to. This one up here, that is uh, spinach, uh, it's cream spinach or spinach okra at 10. If you ever get into the astronaut program and fly in space, do not eat this. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might think you like it, but anyway, if, if it does, if you do like it, send me a postcard and tell me about it. Uh, beef tips with mushroom, potatoes, okra, tana. They're actually really good. You just have to rehydrate them. The number one choice of short duration crew members is the uh, shrimp cocktail. Why? Because it's got uh, horseradish sauce and you become very congested when you're in space. Peach ambrosia in the center. And again, if you rehydrate it, it's a pretty nice dessert. I think. But preparing meals in space, they do give us trays and stuff. But you know, you just stick your taco against the mid-deck locker or against you know the rack in the space station. You throw your scrambled eggs, and it'll stick because of surface tension. And you know, you put your hot sauce. It's all good. It works out really well. Thanks. Anyway, and uh, the tray in the back, which is not being used, we never use. I don't. I don't know why we even bother flying these things because I don't know any astronaut in the history of the program that's ever used one. And by the, you don't need knives and forks, even though they fly knives and forks. We use a spoon exclusively to eat everything. And the most important things are your scissors to open your whatever it is you're going to eat, and your spoon to eat it with. But you know you can have fun with your food and have it float around, play with it. Shaving in space is interesting. We we shave with an electric razor. Some people use a regular razor and the problem with shaving in space is when you shave with an electric razor all the little hairs become airborne 
And then, of course, the only thing that takes them out of the air is the filter systems. So if you lose something in space, the first place to go look is in the filter system because that's where it's going to end up. But uh, it is a little bit problematic when you think about all the stuff that you breathe in when you're in space because you're breathing a lot of these airborne particulates down into your upper airway and your, uh, some of it may even get into your lower airway. So something to think about. Showers in space don't exist. This is back in the Skylab program when they did have showers in space. And there it's this big long cylinder and you pull it up and you clamp a couple of clamps in the top so now you're inside this long cylindrical uh, fiber device. And you've got a handheld water gun so you squirt water all over yourself. It's really cool. And then you get soap all over yourself. You ever been in one of those apartments where all of a sudden you're having a shower, you're halfway through and the water stops? Or, you know, the hot water stops and it's only cold, so you got to turn around and you got soap all over you. That's kind of what it's like having a shower in space. Because you end up with soap and water all over your body, and there's no gravity to take it off. So you can try spraying it off with water, but that doesn't really work all that well. All it does is cause the stuff to move around. So generally what they did is they get soap and water all over the body, and then there's a handheld vacuum, and you vacuum the stuff off. Kind of, you know, the only problem is if your hair gets stuck in the vacuum. That's why my hair's kind of short these days. One of those things. The toilet in space, uh, you know, you got to have one. Uh, we can talk about that afterwards and things. <laughs> the important thing about the toilet in space is not to break it. And, you know, it's interesting for <laughs> It's what we call a self-critiquing maneuver. But uh, imagine going to Mars and you're in a small spacecraft, presumably with six people. Might be three, but I'm willing to bet it's going to be six. But it will be a small spacecraft because you know I've got up mass issues and things. And somebody breaks the toilet. This is not good, right? So in terms of team behavior, you know, being a good steward of all the equipment is something that's really important. And being a jack of all trades, where you can actually fix something if you break it, is something is even more important when you're looking at these missions. So the treadmill in space, we have to learn how to do things differently. This is the space station. There's a lot of room. You can have a treadmill. Treadmill's really narrow. You've got a harness to keep you on the treadmill. We're not taking the space station to Mars. And the transit time, the zero-g transit time to Mars will be six months, roughly. So how are we going to exercise in a capsule on our way to Mars? And that's going to be a whole host of different challenges for us. So the Russians believe that you can do things like transcutaneous muscle stimulation to maintain muscle strength. But in terms of bone density, cardiovascular conditioning, it's going to be a challenge. You can have a handheld cycle ergometer and try and bring your heart rate up with something like that. But these are all issues that we're going to need to understand when you get to space. You know, the cool part about being in space is you get to do things that are really neat, like eat on the ceiling or run on the ceiling and stuff. So orientation doesn't really matter. I remember when I was on my first space shuttle flight on Neuralab, set up the cyclergometer. It's on the flight deck. So the overhead windows are above me. I climb into the seat and I'm looking at the overhead window at Mount Everest going by. And I cycle for 90 minutes while Lance Armstrong thinks he's pretty fast. Right? <laughs> now he's got nothing on me. I went around the whole world on my bike in 90 minutes, right? Because of course I'm on the space shuttle that's orbiting the Earth at Mach 25. It makes a big difference. So anyway, it's pretty incredible being able to do that. And there's the cyclergometer in space. You can actually sit in this seat. You'll see that there's a waist strap that's kind of hovering around here. A lot of us don't bother with that. You can just cycle on the thing with your upper torso unrestrained, and it works pretty well. Um, but if, if you want to look at the overhead window and you're in the shuttle, it makes it easier if you strap yourself into the seat to be able to do it. Lifting weights, we do have a resistive exercise device. And I, we used to joke about this when I was director of life sciences. Because this costs millions of dollars to be able to develop, right? So during one meeting, we sort of jokingly said, you know, Home Shoppers Network Friday night, you see that, the, the bungee cords of people, right? You can buy $1,000. We're spending like $25 million. It's, you know, basically the same concept. You're using flex packs, which are essentially elastic bungees inside a specially designed canister, which is down here. And you're able to do resistive exercise against them. So the exercise program in space is aerobic, which is a very important element of it for cardiovascular conditioning. It's resistive for bone strength and muscle strength, bone density muscle strength. And the interesting thing about the treadmill is because you're going up and down, it turns out that if you're watching a DVD while you're running on the treadmill, the gaze stabilization required to focus on the DVD does give you some neurovestibular conditioning as well. 
which helps when you come into a gravitational environment at the end of the mission. So this is uh, a good example of centrifuges. And you know, Ames was working on this a lot. Uh, the fact that we can put a human in a centrifuge and create artificial gravity. So we actually developed what's called the human-powered centrifuge. This is a centrifuge that requires a motor. It's essentially an off-axis centrifuge. And uh, needless to say, the g-forces in the lower extremities are going to be greater than the g-forces at the head. This is similar to one that we flew on Neurolab. And uh, I would not say that on a short duration mission of 16 days, having a centrifuge and spinning off axis with my legs out made any difference to my muscle strength in my legs. We simply don't know. There's another device called the human-powered centrifuge. It's like a bike that goes around a 360-degree track, which I'm sure some of you are going, do you have to take like sickness medication to prevent getting sick going around and around and around in a circle like that? We don't know because nobody's ever done it before. But we believe that if you're able to exercise on a bike like that, your lower extremities are going to actually get some degree of gravitational loading. And your spine, those, uh, the muscles and the bones that are important to enable us to walk directly, will actually get some degree of conditioning as well, which is important. So, you know, there's also terrestrial spin-offs of everything we do in space. The old age rejuvenator centrifuge, just climb on. We're kidding, of course. But uh, it's an interesting concept as to what to do. And I like to say, in the 60s, you know, a lot of this stuff was science fiction. Science fiction becomes science fact. And that has happened. So 2001 Space Odyssey, rotating space station. You know, we, we talked about artificial gravity from a fictional perspective back in the 60s. The other thing that's interesting about this, hibernation for long duration deep space travel. NASA's doing hibernation research and we're doing uh, research in spinning either space stations or human-powered centrifuges or some on-orbit centrifuges and countermeasures. So from science fiction to science fact is something that's really, really pretty incredible. So from my perspective as an emergency trauma physician, the crew healthcare system on board the International Space Station, reasonably robust capability similar to what you'd find in a family doctor's office or a walk-in clinic, not as sophisticated as an emergency department in terms of our clinical capability, but transitioning from this capacity to what we're going to be managing uh, with lunar return missions to Mars is critical. Being able to do wellness exams in space and teaching the crew members actually what this is all about is something that's really important. And I know you're sitting there thinking, why are you teaching engineers how to do a medical exam? Why not have artificial intelligence incorporated with smart diagnostic sensors and be able to do all that? And of course you can. It's just we don't do it these days. Right? So in the future, a lot of this standard approach to clinical interventions will be modified by the development of new technology. So people often ask us, they say, what do you do when you're in space? Well, you know, you can do lots of things. Reading is a good thing to do. And what I think is so cool about this slide is look at the literary choices. You got one person who's reading Harry Potter, and somebody else is reading Stephen Ambrose, Wild Blue, which is, you know, history of the US Air Force and things, they're kind of cool. And this person's reading a fish atlas. <laughs> I don't know, you know, maybe, where, where do they have those things? Is it Enceladus? They got lakes and all that stuff underneath ice. Anyway, it's uh, kind of interesting what people take to the space. When I flew in space, there's a picture of my daughter Olivia and my son Evan is here with us, but uh, you take pictures of your family with you. And you know, in, in your sleep station on board the International Space Station, you'll have the photographs up on the wall and things that we're actually now able to speak to families using voice over internet protocols with the computers on board the station. So you know, you're able to interact. The problem is we're all human. And there's nothing, it's tough when you, you know, call home and how are things going? Well, you're not going to believe what happened. The principal called and, you know, like, I'm on a space station. And we're talking about, you know, somebody who didn't go to school that day or something. So that has emotional consequences and it's tough. It's tough being removed from family, being separated. And many times people will say to me, what's the hardest thing about long duration space flight? I'd say it's being separated from your family. And, you know, trying to figure out how your family's coping without you being there. And the family on Earth, recognizes that there's a reasonable probability that you're not coming back from this, that this could be a one-way trip, and they're trying to deal with that as well. So yes, we do have a guitar on board the International Space Station. Yeah, it's possible to play the guitar. I didn't actually record myself, but anyway, I played it and things, and it's uh, fun to be able to do it. You need things like that. The challenge is 
the space station has a lot of space. There's a lot of usable volume. Again, if you're on a six-month mission to Mars, where you're going to need this stuff, you don't have the same real estate to pack your favorite guitar and bring 20 DVDs and 10 books and all this other sort of stuff. So nowadays, we tend to fly with smart devices, you know, an iPad, where you can put a lot of material on a handheld device and store your information that way. And uh, makes it a little bit easier to be able to do. So we've demonstrated you know, this element of it. Mission six to 12 months in uh, low Earth orbit. I, we've been there, done that, and now it's time to go farther. Some people believe very strongly that we need to go back to the moon primarily as a proving ground to develop and validate the technologies that we need to be able to explore space farther. I get it, and I'm not saying we don't have to. However, what I worry about is the cost of doing a lunar return and doing a human mission to Mars roughly around the same time period. The costs are huge, and of course they tend to be overruns in the cost estimates and things. So if I had a personal choice and I had to pick a destination, one destination, I'd rather go here than there, but you know there's a lot of merit to going here, and uh, the program currently is focused on going there and using the moon as a platform to then validate the technologies to be able to go farther. So you know now we say we're using the International Space Station. Keep in mind the dates at the top, right? 2020s, so 2020s, we're going to be operating in the lunar vicinity, which means potentially uh, Josh or Jenny, the two Canadian astronauts right now, could walk on the moon. That's so cool. Am I a little jealous? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but you know, that's a whole other story, right? But what's really interesting is you think about Mars, and you say, well, it's not going to be, you know, David, so maybe David and uh, and Jeremy will be in, you know, on this one too, who knows. And maybe Josh and Ginny will be there. But you know what's really cool, when I talk to seven-year-olds, maybe there's a seven-year-old in Canada that's out there right now thinking that they want to do that, and that they don't think that's going to be possible. And you know, my message, even for some of you in the room who are dreaming of becoming an astronaut, my message is somebody's got to do the job. right? So they've got to pick somebody. And you've got a reasonable chance. So if you apply, you know, who knows what's going to happen? The worst that can happen is they say no. If you don't apply, you're never going to have any chance at all. And I think I was a kid that grew up in the 60s, and I was told that I could not be a Canadian astronaut, legitimately so, because we didn't have an astronaut program in the 60s. And I became an astronaut in space. So the challenge for all of us is to think about the context of the word impossible and make the impossible possible. And that's something that's very cool and exciting to be able to do. So of course, emissions from the space station, great uh, time-lapse photograph of the silhouette of the space station on the surface of the moon, but those missions on the station will get us ready, potentially, to go back to the moon. Um, we saw this image of the moon rising up over the Earth's horizon on our third spacewalk, absolutely incredible. We were halfway through our third spacewalk, Clay Anderson and I, and we are doing a whole bunch of tasks, uh, doing maintenance work on the space station. Houston calls us and said, take a minute and enjoy the view and uh, Hurricane Dean was in the Gulf of Mexico. So the first thing you do is check that your tether's attached, right? You don't want to, it's kind of a Darwinian moment in your life, right? But anyway, so you check your tether, and then we pushed away from space station. We're floating freely in space, looking down through the eye of Hurricane Dean in the Gulf. It was amazing. So after two minutes of that, mission control says, okay, time to get back to work. And we turn around, we're looking at this. What are you guys doing up there? Well, we're taking pictures. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry. We'll get back and we'll start doing what we're supposed to do. Now, going back to the moon, who knows what the lander is going to look like? You know, suffice it to say, it'll look probably different than the lunar lander of the Apollo program. I doubt we're going to be living above the surface of the moon. Uh, however, it is quite possible that we use the beam technology, which is currently on board the International Space Station, inflatable habitat technology built by Bigelow Aerospace. Originally, it was, uh, I think, co-designed with Boeing. But uh, we do have the beam module, which is this technology on the International Space Station right now. So there are advantages to that. Uh, there's disadvantages, but there are advantages to that as well. Needless to say, working on the surface of the moon, we need to be performing useful tasks. So we'll talk about spacewalking in that environment in a little bit. But this is a, uh, a mock-up you know, on Earth of what an inflatable structure might look like and the volume that you might see inside it. Uh, this picture is taken down at Johnson Space Center when they were doing the prototype testing of the early inflatable modules. But more exciting is the ESA idea of let's 3D print a habitat in space. 
And you know, with today's technology, we can kind of nod and think that that's achievable. 10 years ago, we would have thought, what are you, crazy? You're gonna print a habitat? I mean, how's that all gonna work? So one of the messages in my uh, mantra about making the impossible possible is we need to think out of the box. So let me have you ruminate on this one and you can ask me questions in the question period about this. And I will start by saying I'm a life scientist, so what do I know? Why is it that we can't travel faster than the speed of light? And I know you're all thinking, well, there's laws of physics, Dave. You obviously didn't take physics as an undergraduate. What are they teaching you at McGill? Oh, I, what I want you to just, you know, take a minute and everything will be good and just think about why is it that we think that that's impossible? And you've got a thousand scientific answers, I get it. Just for you to think about when I, back in the 1930s we thought it was impossible to travel faster than the speed of sound, right? And we travel, I traveled Mach 25 myself personally and came back and survived the experience. More importantly though, in my lifetime when I started at McGill, it was 1971, so I was born a long time ago. Yeah, the Earth was still around back then, in the last millennium. Anyway, so I started at McGill in 71. In cell and molecular biology at McGill, I was told that you could not map the human genome. McGill's a great university, okay? And not only was I told that, it was on the final test question, okay, that you could not map the human genome. Well, we've been there and done that. Not only that, we're doing it in space. So what's in, what I'm trying to get everyone to think about Get rid of the word impossible, rather than using the word impossible, think about what would the conditions be that would enable us to do whatever it is that you consider impossible. Because 3D printing a habitat 10 years ago would have been considered impossible. And now we look at it and go, oh, well that's imminently doable. So the other thing that's interesting is using you know, lunar regolith up around the habitat, radiation shielding and things. There's lots of potential opportunities with this. Uh, there's the uh, inflatable technologies that we talked about before and what it looks like on the inside. And the, the big issue that we worry about, which you know, you're looking at this going, oh, that's so exciting. Can you imagine being on the moon and you open this hatch door and you step down and then you realize that the moon has got dust. And dust is a big deal. The human lungs don't like dust. This is not going to look like that on the moon. It's going to be gray. The spacesuits that came back from Apollo are gray. They're not white. And they're all contaminated with lunar dust. Did the Apollo astronauts breathe the lunar dust? Yes. Have they suffered health consequences from it? Not that we know of. But understanding how we manage Martian dust and lunar dust is going to be very important when we have humans living and working on the surface of the planet. So another picture of uh, the inflatable module and what it would look like on board space. Of course, Orion developing the next generation of spacecraft. But I think what's interesting with this slide, it just puts it in perspective, right? Low Earth orbit, three hours to get back to the planet. Now, let's not debate whether it's three or four or two or five. It doesn't really matter. It's hours, okay? So if somebody gets a very significant illness on board the space station, we can have them back on Earth and in a terrestrial hospital probably within 24 hours. But if you're on the moon, it's three days. So if I don't have the medical capability of managing the issue on the surface of the moon, it's a little bit dicey if you're actually going to survive the three days and get back to the Earth and be able to live through the experience. Mars, six months transit time, it's game over. Okay? You either have to take care of whatever the problem is on Mars, or they're uh, going to pass away in space. And then you can kind of go down the various lists of the requirements of the technology, but you know, as the representative of the of the human in the loop, we need to develop the human capacity to be able to do that. The mission orbits uh, very similar to what we saw in the Apollo program. You know the concept of an Earth orbit and then a translunar injection going to a flyby phase on the surface of the Moon, landing on the Moon. So that's a standard uh, ballistic capsule. What I think is interesting is the SpaceX model, which of course you then travel to the Moon and land on the surface of the Moon vertically and then take off vertically, which is a incredible capability to be able to think of. And you know, years ago we would have said that a private company would never do that because of the cost, the risks, etc. These days, if you were to ask me who's it going to be that will do this, I, I don't know. I think, I suspect it's going to be a collaboration between a private sector partner and government agencies that are going to develop the technologies that will enable us to go forward and do this. The biggest issue that I worry about in space is actually radiation. And I think whether you're talking about missions back to the moon or missions on to Mars, 
you know, the, the effects of radiation on the human body will be relevant. And uh, we're actually seeing this on astronauts who've been in short duration missions in low Earth orbit, where you get a premature incidence of cataracts. We've got astronauts at age 50 have the lens of their eye replaced because they had cataracts. And those are generally people who are flown in higher inclination orbits and stayed in space longer. But the effect of radiation is real. And fundamentally, there's different ways of solving the problem. You can shield. So you, you get rid of radiation by shielding. Problem with shielding is it weighs a lot, so your up mass is significant, so your lift capability has to be pretty robust. You can go from point A to point B faster, and because you're transiting faster, you're, you're reducing your overall duration of exposure. Or you can accept the fact that you're getting exposed and look at a biologic agent that you take that will then mitigate the biologic effects of the radiation exposure. The answer is we don't have an answer at this point. We're working on all three categories of solutions, but it'll be interesting to see what we come up with because I think ultimately we will be sending humans to Mars and it's going to be incredible to be able to, to do missions like that. You know, Mars is an amazing place. Uh, when I first started in the space program, the dis whole discussion about water and the potential of water on Mars was really robust. I mean, this is in the early 90s, right? And you think about how much more all of you know about planetary science today compared to what we knew 20 years ago. Uh, it was really uh, quite remarkable. When I was director of life sciences at NASA, I had a shelf in my office. It was called the Making the Impossible Possible Shelf. And there were two things on the shelf. One was a model of the Avro Arrow, which I loved because you know all of my colleagues from the United States would come into the office and say, what is that? So I'd explain what the Avro Arrow was. But the only other thing on the shelf was a scanning electron micrograph of the Allen Hills meteorite that David McKay gave me. And he gave that to me in 1986, oh sorry, 1996, 97, somewhere around there. And I was just blown away. And again, I'll say, what do I know? I'm a life scientist. But he, he came into my office, and those of you who know Dave would recognize how he did this, but he comes in and he says, here, have a look at this photograph. Okay. And then he says, what do you think it is? And I said, well, I don't know. It looks to me like bacteria. And he said, well, that's surprising. How would you feel if I told you that's in a meteorite that came from Mars? They'd say, no, really? And of course, you know the controversy that raged in the scientific literature and is still going on in the scientific literature. But the more important point is that we need to send humans to Mars to see whether or not there is evidence that life once existed on Mars. So we get images like this from the rovers. And I love this slide that NASA put together, the evolution of a Martian, right? from rover through to human. And you know, I've been to JPL and had very spirited discussions with the JPL team who are amazing, amazing scientists. And they're really, really good about having rovers explore the non-human exploration of space. But the reality of it is, I think it will be the combination of humans and rovers that will ultimately help us understand planets from a different perspective. So you know, whether it's curiosity um, or spirit, uh, it's, it's just incredible the capabilities that we've been able to take in fast sending rovers to the surface of Mars, landing them on the surface of Mars. But I think really we need to focus on what's the capacity we have to have to have send humans successfully to Mars and have them work on the surface of this planet. And whether or not this is the type of technology, whether the rovers will be ride-on rovers versus ride-in rovers, there's a big difference between the two, and the, the up-mass capabilities of the two and things, we don't know, and we need to understand that. But you look at this picture, and again, this kind of blows me away. You kind of look at it and go, it's this boring black and white picture. But that is the Earth, as seen, and you know, many of you probably know that already. But anyway, that's the Earth. I still get excited about this. That's the Earth as seen from the surface of Mars. Imagine you're standing on the surface of Mars and you're looking at that. That opens up a whole host of discussions about team performance, behavioral impact, and isolation, notwithstanding all the technological challenges we have in living, working, and exploring this environment. So European Space Agency, another interesting model for habitat, you'll notice that, of course, it's lifted up above the surface of Mars. I submit that we'll probably be tunneling into Mars and using the uh, soil as a radiation shield. Another artist's uh, reconstruction of what it might look like in that environment. Of course, working with technology and working with rovers, the advantage of the current ride-in rover that NASA's suggesting is, like you saw in the movie, and by the way, there are a whole lot of people who think we've already gone to Mars because they saw it in the movie. There's this movie, it's the Martian. We've been there, done that. Why do you people keep talking about sitting here in Mars? It happened already. 
Anyway, of course, no, it didn't happen, no things. But anyway, the concept of a ride-in rover gives you capabilities to ride on rovers don't. And I actually did a lunar 10K, so I ran a 10K and one-fifth G in a lunar spacesuit on a treadmill at Johnson Space Center. And the whole point of that was to be able to demonstrate that if the rover got 10K away from your habitat and broke, that you could actually get back to your habitat. Uh, so it's uh, important to be able to consider. So needless to say, I look at this and I say, wow, that's really cool, you're working with tools. The risk in working with tools is you rupture a spacesuit glove, where you puncture it, and bad things can happen when you puncture uh, spacesuits in uh, areas where there's not a significant atmosphere. And of course, the rovers are great, but they can get stuck, and it'll be humans working with robots and rovers that makes a difference. Great picture of Nancy Curry in uh, one of the advanced planetary suits working with robonauts, so it introduces this whole concept of what do robots do better than humans? And years ago at Pavilion Lake, when we were looking for microbialites, which is um, uh, basically evidence of uh, life living in harsh extreme environments, we compared humans piloting a sub versus ROVs that were semi-autonomous and then ROVs that were fully autonomous. And what we found out is that Generally, the technology, the ROV autonomous technology is great for serving large parts of an area, but when you find something of interest, the best yield is sending a human to be able to look and see exactly what's going on. So that's why I suspect that pictures like this will become a reality in the future. We will see humans living and working on the surface of Mars, potentially ride-in rovers versus ride-on rovers. I wouldn't be surprised if there's both available together. Um, Mike Gernhardt, who played a significant role in, in developing uh, this rover, uh, he and I were underwater for a week on the uh, first Nemo 1 mission back in 2001. And it's a really interesting concept, and we talked a lot about this. You know, what do you talk about when you're 60 feet under the ocean and it's the middle of the night? Hey, let's design a rover for Mars. It's kind of cool. But putting the spacesuits on the back is a really novel idea that Mike came up with, where you can climb into the spacesuit and then close the hatch of the spacesuit, step off. Again, you've got the dust issue to worry about, and you're already going to be able to get a good seal and things. Uh, this picture, of course, doesn't come from Mars, it comes from the Moon, but it gives you a sense of how big the craters are. And as an emergency physician, I look at this and say, there's an accident waiting to happen. Right? I mean, somebody's just going to go a little too far and go down there and bounce around and roll the rover two or three times. And trauma inside a spacesuit is going to be a different thing than trauma not wearing a spacesuit. Because the spacesuit's like an exoskeleton and it's going to stabilize you and things. So the Apollo astronauts learned to work in the suit uh, in a 1G environment. They learned to work with tools. And you can see even in this terrestrial training environment, the suits are covered with, uh, with dust and earth and things. Oh, uh, yeah, that was from my first trip to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty compelling, don't you think? Yeah, anyway, let's say in the uh, simulated training facility at Johnson Space Center. Looks pretty good. And I was evaluating a planetary exploration suit and looking at the mobility of the gloves and the tools to see whether or not we'd actually be able to uh, use a suit like that in that planetary environment. One of the things that we discovered, and again, shh, don't tell anybody, okay? But one of the things we discovered in the uh, Apollo missions is if you look at the life support system of the crew member, the center of gravity is actually too high. And you can see that this person, I don't know who it is, but they're leaning forward a little bit. And uh, if this plays, I'm not sure if it's going to play yet. So just watch what happens. I think this is Dave Scott. But anyway, he needs to take a core uh, <coughs> specimen. So, you know, he's kind of doing what we're all trained to do. And uh, for those of you who are planetary geologists, I'm sure you're thinking, I would never do it that way. But just watch this, it's kind of cool. You know, there it goes. Oh, my goodness gracious. Now he's kind of fallen over. So then the question is, how does he get back up? <laughs> Videos you never saw from Apollo. <laughs> Does it? I'm thinking to myself, you saw how close his visor came to this. Like, if there was a rock there, his visor would have you know, gone right into it and things. So, needless to say, we've got to figure this out and provide suits that are going to enable astronauts to work in these environments. This is a picture of Rick Mastracchio, who I did uh, two spacewalks with Rick. He was on his third spacewalk of STS 118 outside with Clay Anderson. He gets this hole in his glove right there. 
a little, it's about one mil millimeter long, it was through the outer layer of the glove. And this was a big deal, right? If you're doing a spacewalk, you get a hole in your glove, like it gets your attention, as you can imagine. So anyway, Rick uh, called Houston, we have to do glove checks every hour or so, and Rick calls Houston, fortunately he did use the famous line, Houston, we have a problem. He sort of calls him <laughs> up and says, Houston, uh, did a glove check and I got a hole in my left glove, and you can imagine mission control. <laughs> he got a what? So anyway, we terminated the spacewalk and he and Clay came back inside and we took a better picture of that. We think what happened is the space station gets hit by micrometeoroids fairly frequently and it's like taking a bullet and shooting it through aluminum so you get sharp edges and we think his glove contacted one of the sharp edges and that's how he ended up with the tear. That illustrates the importance of us understanding how to have astronauts living and working either on the moon or Mars with tools safely without uh, you know, destroying the suit. And also, how do you maintain a suit? How do you get the consumables you're going to need for a three-year mission to Mars to be able to go out and do spacewalks on a regular basis? So interesting challenges. For those of you who are uh, doctors or anatomists in the room, you're going to love this slide. Anyway, when we move our arm, we move our arms around. The problem is the hard upper torso of the spacesuit does not allow you to actually lift your arm up above your shoulder. And uh, it turns out that if you, and we did a whole shoulder injury study on this because we had astronauts getting shoulder injuries, if I bring my arm up above my head, my collarbone goes from being horizontal to coming up like that. It doesn't do that in the spacesuit. It can't do that anatomically in the spacesuit. So what we've been noticing is the prevalence of rotator cuff injuries in astronauts. I made it through the whole program with no rotator cuff injury, and I don't mind telling you this. It's medical information, but I don't care. Uh, my right rotator cuff is 50% torn. I can do this, okay, but it's because I have 50% of the tendon remaining. Was that because I did three spacewalks and trained about 1,000 hours underwater in a spacesuit where I couldn't do that? I don't know. I have no idea at all. The reality of it, though, is we need to figure this stuff out if we expect humans to be able to do useful tasks in a gravitational environment, even if it's a partial gravitational environment. Lots of studies about Mars. You know, the Russians and the Europeans did the Mars 500-day study. You got the one in Oman. A lot of interesting things happening. The only reason why I share this one is the Russians, when they go do a, a program, will always simulate it on the ground ahead of time. And this was years ago. This is actually probably 10, 15 years ago that they did this now. But um, I wouldn't uh, be at all surprised if they've got a plan to go and do uh, a real mission to Mars and whether that'll be collaborative or not, I don't know. So the 500-day mission, needless to say, you learn probably more from a psychological behavioral team perspective than you do about technology and things, but these are worthwhile analog environments to be able to use. There's a picture of the chambers in Russia that were used, and there's a picture of the crew that uh, went inside. And they're out doing a simulated uh, spacewalk and things. But, you know, scientific analogs, so I call them science, scientific analogs, Hodgkin Crater, great analog, Pavilion Lake, great analog, the Aquarius Undersea Research Habitat, we've been using them for years, and they will help us learn the lessons that we need to learn to be able to get ready to send humans from this environment to actually live and work on the surface of uh, another planet in our solar system. So this is an interesting slide, and again, there's people in this room that know way more about this than I do, so I'm not going to talk about it other than to say the interesting question if we send humans to Mars will be, will we leave it like we found it, or will we modify it and make it more habitable for humans and terraform it? And that's an interesting discussion, and you can get high school students really engaged in discussions like this, because it doesn't matter if you're an expert in planetary science, this is a, a moral ethical discussion that we're having. And I tend to be of the philosophy when I explore on Earth, leave no trace. And whether it's going into the woods, hiking, or whether you're climbing or going to the Arctic, the Antarctic, my belief is leave no trace. So if you were to ask me, I probably am going to fall on this side of it. But inevitably, if humans go forward as a spacefaring species and explore within our solar system, we're going to need to make it easier to live there. One of the reasons why we don't live underwater on Earth is it's hard living underwater. And you know, going outside, it takes a lot of technology to be able to go outside. And we humans like to be able to go outside. We like to go to the mall, go shopping, do all these things. And you can't really do that readily living underwater. And if you're living in a habitat on the surface of Mars, and the only time you get to go outside is when you wear a spacesuit, it'll be similarly problematic. So these are questions that the next generations will be wrestling with when we send humans to Mars, because I would argue that when we do it, we'll do it like the space station, where we rotate crews on the surface of the planet, and that uh, 
uh, we will then have humans living continuously on the surface of another planet in our solar system, confirming that yes, we the human species are a space-faring species. So in closing, I just wanted to say, I think it's really important, we heard this from the panel, one of the ways that we can help disseminate information about space is working with kids. So, you know, as a, uh, an astronaut, a former astronaut, I'm on the speaking circuit and all that, but this is, I'm actually way more excited about this, and I think my co-author, Laura Donna, is around here somewhere. But uh, anyway, we have four books, and um, it basically focuses on STEM without mentioning the word STEM. And the first one is called To Burp or Not To Burp. You can read the title as well as I. It's really cool. It actually talks about a situation that uh, it's the whole reason for the book was I was giving a talk in an elementary school and 600 kids, you know, they're all little kids. And at the end of the talk, I said, does anybody have any questions? And this little guy, he gets up in the front. I have a question. And you, you're kind of wondering, like, okay, what are you answering? So he says, I'm wondering, you know, if you're in space, do you need gravity to help food go to your stomach when you eat? Because like on Earth, like, we have gravity, so that's probably why food goes to the stomach. So this is a brilliant question, right? I mean, doctors at NASA worried about this in 1961 and 62, and think it's a really important question. So I, I'm about to answer. And he says, but I did an experiment on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's like 600 kids, there's this little kid. And so I said, what's your experiment? He said, well, I went to the park, and I got on the monkey bars. And I had my apple juice with me, and I got upside down, and I wanted to see when I drank my apple juice upside down if it was going to go to my stomach or if I was going to, in quote, pork it out my nose. <laughs> so I said, well, what happened? And then he says, it went to my stomach. And I said, there you go. You see? You can swallow against the force of gravity. You don't need gravity to be able to swallow and have food go to your stomach. That's why we wrote book number one. Really pretty cool to be able to do. Book number two, Go for Liftoff talks about what we do to train to be an astronaut. So this is not just for people that are into space. You know, one of the things we say in this book is, it's what you do when you don't succeed that determines whether you will succeed. It's a lifetime love of learning that enables us to go forth and explore. So that's, we had a lot of fun with that book. The third book, which is coming out, uh, I think, either this week or next week, Mighty Mission Machines, all about those machines that we need to uh, have with us to be able to go and explore space. And uh, the fourth book, Destination Space, check this out. You've got to love it. Destination, living on other planets. That is like so cool. I want to go live on another planet. So anyway, I don't know very much about planetary science. We were able to uh, enlist the help of uh, Dr. Patel. There you are in the back, Parshati, who is incredible at helping us out because, you know, as a life scientist, I can tell you all about the changes the human body's going to have if you're living on Titan. But what do I know about living on Titan? So anyway, we put this one together. And this book is really, really cool because another time I'm giving a talk to a group of students, and this even younger student gets up and asks a question. And you know, I say, so what's your question? And he says to me, you know, I'm wondering, why is the temperature on Venus greater than the temperature on Mercury, but Mercury's closer to the sun? It's like this little kid this big. And I'm like, I'm a life scientist, right? Please, like, who do I get a free consult? So, so we start talking about greenhouse gases and things. These kids are really smart. And I think what we're trying to do with these four books is to be able to figure out a way of capturing their imagination. So as they go forward looking at space, they recognize that they have an opportunity to get involved in the exploration of space, whether it's working as a scientist, whether it's working as an astronaut, leaving the planet, staying on Earth, doesn't really matter. And that they understand that Canada is a major spacefaring nation. And that yes, turns out roughly 50 years before Goddard and Tchaikovsky came up with the ideas of exploring space, the Canadian first described the principles of human spaceflight. So thanks very much for having me, and uh, do we have time for questions? We might have one or two. And if you have to leave, that's okay too, it's not a problem. So thanks very much. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you to consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. <laughs> <laughs>
If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.